I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you want. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, first things first, you may have noticed that my voice has a slightly husky edge, for which I apologise. I had, I think it was laryngitis or something last week, and I lost my voice completely in the middle of the week. I was just talking like this, I was just making this terrible squeaking noise. I thought I was never going to be able to speak again. Anyway, now my, my voice is back, but it has a, a slightly Tom Waits quality to it. It's kind of Tom Waits, Frank's wild years kind of period. And uh, so, or maybe a little bit whispering Bob Harris. So just bear with me, because uh, as you can hear, it's not the full strength Kermode voice that you might have expected. Or you never know, you might find this more agreeable version. Anyway, there are two uh, separate elements to uh, this week's podcast. The second element, coming up in a while, is highlights from last week's MK3D show that I do every month live at the South Bank. It's a show that we're now in our fourth year of doing it. We do it every month. And it's always on a Monday night and we get guests on to talk about film. That's pretty much it. And there's a very regular audience. If you're interested, you want to come along, go to the BFI website. You can get tickets from there, although they do sell out pretty quickly. But we had a great show last week. Our guests uh, included uh, Nicole Taylor, who is the writer of the new movie Wild Rose, and its star, Jessie Buckley. Now, Jessie Buckley had come on the show before to talk about Beast, which is an absolutely brilliant movie, but she's fantastic in Wild Rose. She plays a country singer from Glasgow who's trying to make a splash in the in the music scene. And in fact, she does get, during the course of the movie, to meet Whispering Bob Harris, of whom I'm doing an impression at the moment. Also on that show, uh, I was very pleased to be able to welcome Max Richter. Max Richter is a film composer. As you may know, I'm, I'm starting a new radio show uh, this week on Scala Radio, which is dedicated entirely to film scores. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of film score records, which I've collected since I was a kid. Anyway, Max Richter, who's recently did the music for Mary Queen of Scots, and before that you may have heard me talking about film Hostiles, in which he used this extraordinary instrument called the Yebahar. And anyway, I think Max is a brilliant composer, and he comes on the show to talk about film music. So you're going to hear about film music from Max Richter, and then about Wild Rose from Jesse Buckley and Nicole Taylor in a while. First off, the final, 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 I promise this is final, word on award seasons. You know, the last podcast was me and Jack Howard talking through the Oscar winners and deciding which ones we agreed with and which ones we didn't agree with. Now, if you've been listening to my radio broadcast or you used to tune into the um, Kermit Uncut channel on YouTube, you'll know that for ages and ages, I ran this alternative awards, which was called the Kermode Awards, that was based on an idea that I came up with many years ago when I was very disillusioned with the Oscars. 
I thought the Oscars are silly. All awards ceremonies are foolish, but none more so than the Oscars. And I wanted to see whether it was possible to get a better list of winners entirely from films and filmmakers who were not nominated for Oscars. So it was a kind of slightly petulant thing to do. But Weirdly enough, it ran for many years. Uh, it started out on the Culture Show, and I think the first year we did it, we had three awards, and by the time we finished, we were doing sort of seven, eight, nine awards, and we were actually getting the awards winners to come on the programme and receive their awards. So Werner Herzog received an award, and David Lynch received an award, and David Cronenberg. And, of course, I'm very proud to say this, Olivia Colman. Olivia Colman got a Kermit Award for her performance in Tyrannosaur, the film that she, uh, that she made with Paddy Considine. Uh, many years ago. So she got that award years before she got nominated for and then won the Oscar. And in fact, um, she said when she got the Kermode Award, this is better than an Oscar. And I'm, I'm still delighted that the Kermode Awards managed to reward Olivia Coleman's greatness ages before the Academy finally caught up. Anyway, I ran the Kermode Awards for quite a long time. And then I, I stopped them because partly because I thought the gag had run out of steam. And partly because I found myself starting to agree with the Oscars more than I had expected. So, for example, the year that Moonlight won Best Film. I thought, you know, th that's right. I, I think Moonlight actually is the best film of the year. And, you know, I loved Shape of Water. I thought Shape of Water was a wonderful film. And I found myself in a position when, although I disagreed with a lot of the Oscar decisions, as everybody does, that's, you know, all award ceremonies are like that, the sort of fundamental underlying purpose of the Kermode Awards had had maybe run its course. But a lot of people got in touch this year and said, look, you know, are you, are you not doing it anymore? So, no, the Kermode Awards don't really exist anymore. But I thought it would be fun just to look through what would potentially have been uh, the winners this year. And I, I've narrowed it down to a few categories, but I, so I, I think it works out quite well. As I said, the principle was, could you get a better list of winners from people who weren't even nominated for the Oscars. So let's start with best original score. Now, the original score category is always very, very complicated because for one thing, it's, you know, it's often hard to judge a score away from the film itself. So the nominees this year were Black Panther, Ludwig Göransson, uh, Black Klansman, Terence Blanchard, If Beale Street Could Talk, Nicholas Brattel, Isle of Dogs, Alexander Desplat, and uh, Mary Poppins Returns for Mark Shaman. And I had actually really wanted Nicholas Patel to win. I, I, I thought that, that his music for If Beale Street Could Talk was absolutely wonderful and, and it was Nicholas Patel's score that I wanted to win. However, if the people that weren't nominated, my vote would have gone for Anna Meredith and Anna Meredith's score for Eighth Grade, which is such a brilliant and integral part of the film. I mean, the most remarkable thing about it is, is it, it is one of those scores that you can listen to on its own. In fact, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit from it on my, my first show on, on Scala Radio. But it's a score that really, really defines the film that it's accompanying. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange and it's kind of weird and eerie and squidgy and, and electronic and it perfectly captures the themes of the film Eighth Grade, which hasn't opened here yet. It opens here in April. Because you may have heard of Eighth Grade because President Obama, Barack Obama, sorry, former President Obama, sadly, um, did his end-of-the-year list of the best records and the best books and the best films of the year and he included Eighth Grade. I mean, you remember a time when America had a president who actually watched films and listened to popular music 
and read books. Good Lord, an American president who actually read books, who was engaged with popular culture, who, when he did his list of the best films of the year, chose really, you know, oddball choices like Annihilation, which didn't get a theatrical release here, and Eighth Grade, which is a really, really interesting film, not least because of Anna Meredith's absolutely brilliant score. Um, you know, look forward to it being released here. I think it's going it, to go down very well, but the score is really, really wonderful. And so Anna Meredith would have been the Kermit Award winner this year. Right. I was a complete mess when I was your age. Really? Eighth Grade is the worst. You never know what's next. And that's what makes things exciting and scary and fun. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? What? On to Best Supporting Actor. Now, both Jack and I had said, you know, the Best Supporting Actor... Uh, Oscar is obviously going to go to Mahershala Ali and understandably so it's a terrific performance there was a lot of love for Richard E. Grant but Mahershala Ali always seemed to have the edge all the way through the awards uh, through the awards process the only argument being that Mahershala Ali isn't really a supporting actor at all when it comes to Green Book I mean I, I think that it's legitimate to say that actually Mahershala Ali is, is the lead actor in that film it is it is a film with two two lead actors so my choice for Best Supporting Actor, and this is appropriate because of the state that my voice is in at the moment, is Tom Waits in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is a Coen Brothers movie that was made for Netflix, and, and as you'll know, there's been a huge amount of controversy at the moment about whether or not Netflix movies should even be eligible for the Oscars. Steven Spielberg is sort of leading this campaign to say that films have to have a certain amount of time in theatres, that they're not the same as, as television movies, and obviously with Roma being the big best picture contender, this this whole thing has been ignited as it has at Cannes, because Cannes didn't play Roma because they had a debate with Netflix, or an argument with Netflix about whether or not Netflix movies would be allowed to compete if they didn't have what they considered to be proper theatrical openings anyway blah 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 in the middle of all this was the Coen Brothers movie The Ballad of Buster Scruggs which is a series it's a portmanteau movie a series of these single stories and one of them is this just brilliant story with Tom Waits as a prospector and it's you know it's almost no dialogue in it he's just on his own in this landscape and it's a really wonderful performance. I think Tom Waits is a great actor anyway. I love his music, you know. I could, I could listen to Tom Waits talk forever. There's a wonderful moment in The Old Man and the Gun. It's a scene-stealing moment in which Tom Waits tells this story about why he hates Christmas. And I think he's a really, really great actor. So he would have got my award for Best Supporting Actor, not least because that is clearly a supporting actor turn. There isn't a lead actor in in Buster Scruggs because it's a it's a series of separate stories of which I think Tom Waits is the real standout. Hello, Mr. Parker. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Parker. On to Best Supporting Actress. Again, there was no question that for me, this was going to be Regina King. We thought this, uh, both Jack and I thought this was an absolute dead cert, and, and, and rightly so. I think she's brilliant in um, If Beale Street Could Talk. One of the great problems with the Oscars this year, of course, was that If Beale Street Could Talk didn't get the kind of love that it deserved. I think it's actually, arguably, an even better film than Moonlight. I certainly think it's a, a way better film than Green Book, which is, you know, driving Miss Daisy, only this time the racist is in the front seat. Whereas If Beale Street Could Talk is a brilliantly inventive adaptation. But 
Of the other nominees in the actors in the supporting roles, Regina King, Amy Adams for Vice, Marinda Devera for Roma, Emma Stone for The Favourite, and uh, Rachel Weisz for The Favourite. Again, there's a question there about you know whether or not those are supporting performances or whether that's a film with three leading performances. But the real disappointment for me was that Millicent Simmons wasn't nominated for A Quiet Place. And she is such an impressive actor. And her role in A Quiet Place is is just brilliant. I did a programme for BBC Four a couple of weeks ago looking back at Oscars and trends in Oscars and how the Oscars tend to vote. And looking at the victory of Molly Matlin when she won for Children of a Lesser God and that being thought of as a moment that would change the face of Hollywood awards in terms of actors with disabilities winning uh, awards for playing characters with disabilities. But as we, as we know, actually things really haven't changed or they've changed very, very slowly. It seemed to me that Millicent Simmons was an absolute perfect example of somebody who should have been rewarded for a brilliant performance, brilliantly cast performance in a film which was so dependent upon her role making it all hang together. I thought she was really, really great. And uh, again, really bad for that to have been overlooked by the Academy. So she would get the Kermode Award for Best Supporting Actress. On now to Best Actor. So the Best Actor category, as you know, is always one of those kind of weird things because people tend to get nominated for the Best Actor Award if they if they do a big sort of grandstanding speech. Well, this year, the Best Actor Award had Viggo Mortensen in Green Book, a certain amount of grandstanding, but not much. Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate. Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born. I thought he was great. Christian Bale, as I said, should have won for Best Supporting Hair and Makeup. And then... Rami Malek, who actually was, I think, a very deserved win. There's been a lot of uh, problems and negative press about Bohemian Rhapsody, but there's no question that Rami Malek's performance in that film was terrific. I mean, he really, do, he really does make you think you're in the room with Freddie Mercury, which is remarkable. However, of the actors that weren't nominated, I mean, Ben Foster for Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace got zero nominations, and Ben Foster's performance is absolutely fantastic. Seven James for If Beale Street Could Talk. Again, I mean, If Beale Street Could Talk being overlooked is, I think, a real, real shame. I would have nominated Thomas Cott for Cold War because I think his performance in that film is great. And, of course, he was going to be the Bond villain in the Danny Boyle Bond movie until it was decided by the producers and i think to some extent by by daniel craig that he you know he wasn't a, he wasn't the right person for the role and the report is that danny boyle moved on from bond because he wanted to have thomas cott for for the the lead role of the villain in the new bond film he is so brilliant in cold war but for best actor i'm going to go for john david washington in black landsman and the reason that I, I love that film and the reason I love that performance is that it walks a knife edge between comedy and horror, between reality and fiction, between history and invention. And that's all encapsulated in his brilliant lead performance. I mean, I didn't know the story before I saw the film. And you know, Spike, Spike Lee has talked about it, saying that it, it, it was it was pitched to him as basically, um, you know, this it's stranger than fiction. It's a crazy story that's actually for real and nobody would believe it. But I think 
one of the reasons you do believe it is because John David Washington's performance in it is so great. I would also have been very pleased to see it or to go to Thomas Cart or to Ben Foster or to Stephen James, but I think John David Washington just had the edge there. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do for him? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish. Italians and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. On now to Best Actress. And once again, it's it's very hard to choose with performances because so much of what a performance is like is to do with what the film is like. Now, there was a huge amount of love in the Oscars room when uh, the award went to Olivia Colman, as I said, not least from me, because I gave Olivia Colman a Kermode Award all those years ago. So she can't have another one. She's already had one. Also, she can't have one this year because she's gone and got herself nominated for an Oscar, which she has then won. In fact, here's a weird historical anomaly. One year, I gave the Kermode Award for Best Animated Feature to uh, Chico and Rita. And uh, I did that on the basis that the film hadn't been nominated for an Oscar, and it should have done. And it turned out that the reason it hadn't been nominated was that it, it hadn't opened, it hadn't qualified in time for the Oscars. And I figured, well, there's no chance that, you know, that it's going to get noticed the next year around. And then, of course, a year later it did. <laughs> I remember saying to, to the director, who's a really great filmmaker who had made things like uh, The Mad Monkey, which I thought was great, I said, can I have the award back? And he said, no. So I said, okay, so there is, in fact, actually a Kermode Award out there that was given to a film that was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> so my apologies for that. Anyway, in the uh, Best Actress category at the Oscars, very, very strong field again. So we had Olivia Colman, who won. Elizio Aparicio, who was so brilliant in Roma. Glenn Close, who I thought was going to win for The Wife. Lady Gaga for A Star Is Born. And Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me? We didn't have Viola Davis. And that is astonishing to me because, frankly, Viola Davis's performance in Widows, another film which was very, very overlooked by the Oscars. I mean, more understandably, perhaps, because it didn't turn out to have the, the appeal with critics and audiences that I, I thought it would. When I reviewed that film for The Observer, I gave it five stars. I thought it was just terrific. I loved it. And I was old enough to remember seeing the TV series, um, you know, all those years ago. And I was watching... Uh, this absolutely brilliant adaptation of it by Steve McQueen with this fantastic ensemble cast and heading up that ensemble was this brilliant uh, lead role by Viola Davis who had won uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor before for her work on Fences with Denzel Washington. But I thought this was the moment that she was she was going to come into her own. And not only did she not win, she was shockingly not nominated. And I think the reason she wasn't nominated was because the film didn't catch the attention that it should have done. This is why I say with performances, it's very difficult because so much of how well a performance does is to do with how well the film does. You can be brilliant in a film that gets overlooked and your performance isn't going to be noticed. Actually, weirdly enough, the area in which this is most true is in the area of soundtracks. So many fantastic movie soundtracks get forgotten about because the film itself doesn't catch the audience or the critics' attention. And the greatest example of this would be Angelo Badalamenti's score for Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Again, which I'm going to be playing on Scala Radio because I love that. I was very privileged some years ago to write the sleeve notes for the vinyl re-release of that. 
But in the case of this, I think Viola Davis was just brilliant. And the fact that she was not nominated meant that I could give her the Kermode Award for Best Actress. And I'm very, very happy to do that because I thought she was great. We got to start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not going to be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. So on to what I think of as the, you know, the two biggies, which is best director and best film. And there's often a kind of disparity, I mean, more often than not now in the Oscars, about, you know, the the best director award going to one film and then the best film going to another film. When it came to the Oscars, Alfonso Cuaron won for Roma. He was up against uh, Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Pavel Pavlikovsky for Cold War, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favourite, and Adam McKay for Vice. And I said of all of those, actually, I, I would have loved to have seen Spike Lee win. Spike Lee won for Adapted Screenplay, but he didn't win for Best Director. And I think he should have done. From the nominated choices, I think he should have won. But from those people who weren't nominated... My choice was really never in doubt. This was the year that, despite having a number of really brilliant movies helmed by women, the Oscars failed to nominate a single woman, including Deborah Granick, who did such a brilliant job with Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace, when it first played in festivals, got the kind of awestruck reviews that a, that a Best Picture winner will get. In fact, I remember the first I heard about it, people saying, this is, a, you know, this is, like, this is the best film you're going to see this year and being sort of slightly trepidatious about it because whenever anybody tells you that, you're automatically on the back foot. And then seeing Leave No Trace and thinking, this is a work of genius. I mean, a fantastic uh, performance by Thompson Harcourt McKenzie, who is so brilliant in that film. Again, would there be a question there about whether that's a, a leading role or a supporting role. Brilliant performance by Ben Foster. And so much of the film, which is about a father and daughter living off-grid in the Pacific Northwest, so much of it is to do with what people don't say rather than what they do say. It's a perfect example of show, don't tell. And I think Deborah Granick, who previously had directed Winter's Bone, the film which, of course, launched the career of Jennifer Lawrence, did such a wonderful job. I mean, I think that film is a flawless film, a film with no faults, a film in which every single element lands correctly. And so for Best Director, and indeed for Best Film, the Kermode Award would go to Deborah Granick and Leave No Trace. Where's your home? With my dad. Same thing that's wrong with you isn't wrong with me. Where are you guys headed? I don't think we knew where we were going. It remains to me. So the best picture contenders this year at the Oscars were Vice, A Star Is Born, Roma, The Favourite, Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Klansman, Black Panther and Green Book. And of course, as we know, the blandest of all of them won Green Book, which is basically an updated version of Driving Miss Daisy. It's not a film that I dislike. It's a film that I like. And there's, you know, what's to dislike about it? I know some people have complained about the politics of it. I don't have a problem with that. I think the performances of Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali are brilliant. But I think the film itself is meh. In the case of Leave No Trace, I think the film is brilliant. I think the performances are brilliant. I think that the writing is brilliant, but I think the film itself is brilliant and it is 
brilliantly directed. And as I said, I think there's not a single thing wrong with that movie. And I would argue that, in fact, this year, once again, it looks like, you know, whatever you agree with or disagree with about the Oscars, you could get at least an equally good selection of winners from films and filmmakers that weren't even nominated. So to recap, were the Kermode Awards still to be going? And so this is a very conceptual idea. My awards would go to for original score, Anna Meredith for eighth grade, for supporting actress, Millicent Simmons for A Quiet Place, for supporting actor, Tom Waits for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, for best actor, John David Washington, for Black Klansman, for best actress, Viola Davis for Widows, Best Director, Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace, and Best Film, Leave No Trace, none of which were nominated in their respective Oscar categories. Oscar Schmoska. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Mark Kermode, and you're listening to the Kermode on Film podcast, spiced up this week by the fact that I have a, a slightly Tom Waits twang in my voice. Now, just before I went down with this throat infection, uh, we did the MK3D show live from the South Bank. So this was the last moment that I had my voice before I lost my voice. So what you're going to hear now is highlights from the MK3D show recorded live at the South Bank last Monday. And our guests were Nicole Taylor, the writer of Wild Rose, and Jesse Buckley, the star of Wild Rose, who's a real firecracker performance. Fantastic, fantastic performance by her. That film's coming up here in a few weeks' time. We also had Max Richter, the composer, who you'll hear from in a moment. I also did a top ten wrestling movies. That was because, as you probably know, last Friday... Uh, this new movie, Fighting With My Family, opened in cinemas. It's directed by Stephen Merchant, who I think has done a brilliant job with the true story of a wrestling family from Norwich, uh, in which we have a great central performance by Florence Pugh, who, again, was a former guest on uh, MK3D. She came on to talk about Lady Macbeth. She's so brilliant in The Falling, the Carol Morley film. Great in Lady Macbeth, and she really commands the screen in Stephen Merchant's film, Fighting With My Family, which is the true story about this wrestler from Norwich who went to America and found fame with the WWE. So as I said, you also get my top ten wrestling movies rundown, and Max Richter, and Nicole Taylor, and Jesse Buckley. And this was the night before my, my voice finally went, and all the ge- I had started to feel that I was a little bit lurgyish. So all the guests were instructed to keep a respectable distance if they didn't want to catch the lurk. 
Turkey. For uh, this month's uh, Listomania, which uh, in honour of fighting with my family, I decided to do top 10 wrestling movies. <laughs> so some of these you will have seen, but some of them you won't. I'm going to start at number 10 with how many people have seen Night of the Bloody Apes? Okay, so that tells me something about the audience. Here's the reason why I chose this, okay? Night of the Bloody Apes was one of the films that was on the video nasties list. One of the best things the Director of Public Prosecutions ever did in the early 1980s was they drew up a list of films, this is before the Video Recordings Act, that were available on video that they thought should be impounded under the Obscene Publications Act. And this was really useful because if you were going to your sort of local video store, which is often just your local corner store, and you wanted to know what to see, if you had the DPP list, it was great. It was basically a list of really offensive titles. And this is one of them. Extraordinarily, The Night of the Bloody Apes is, is one of a, a, a very small genre of films, which is Mexican wrestling horror movies. And it's a, it's, a, it's a small category, obviously. It was released, it's made in about the late 1960s, early 1970s. It was originally released, uh, in, uh, and the Mexican title was um, uh, The Horror of the Man Beast. And then it was released uh, in an English language version under the title Horror and Sex which kind of covered everything. There isn't actually any sex in it. There's just lots of wrestling. And uh, so anyway, I'm not going to show you clips of other movies, but I am going to show you just a little bit of the trailer of Night of the Bloody Apes, because when I was a teenager, this was meat and potatoes for us. Okay, here we go. Half man, half beast, all horror. Nobody sleeps. Beware. The night of the bloody apes. They rip, they tear, they claw you to pieces. It's an orgy of terror. Beware, it's the night of the bloody apes. Interestingly enough, it is a film that actually contains real footage of open heart surgery, um, but not done by somebody dressed as an ape. Uh, at number nine, uh, The Wrestler. Do you remember when uh, Mickey Rourke made The Wrestler and it was his sort of great comeback performance and the whole of the beginning of the film was the camera following him from behind before he, he turned around. And of course, Mickey Rourke, early on in his career, he was this kind of, kind of James Dean lookalike character and then he went into boxing. And so he was somebody who had done a lot of time in the ring. So by the, by the time you sort of finally saw Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, he did look like he'd gone 12 rounds. Uh, on to number eight, and people might not think of this as a wrestling film, Barton Fink. Now, the reason I chose Barton Fink is because of this, because the character of Barton Fink goes to Hollywood he wants to write poetic screenplays and as he gets sold by his producer it's a Wallace Beery wrestling picture you know the drill big men in tights okay so when they wrote that weirdly enough the film that the Coen brothers were perhaps inadvertently referring to was our next choice which is this this is Wallace Beery in flesh and this is the film on which William Faulkner served as an uncredited script advisor. So William Faulkner genuinely did write Wallace Beery wrestling pictures, though he wasn't credited for it. Um, at number seven, uh, Grunt. 
Grunt, the wrestling movie, this is, this is a, a kind of a, a, a wrestling documentary satire about that central character. Uh, what he does is he gets banned from wrestling after learning an obscure army maneuver that enables him to decapitate somebody in the ring by mistake. And after he's decapitated him, he feels very bad about it. So he goes away from wrestling, but then he comes back with a mask on, you know, like Elvis sort of coming back as, as Orion, but obviously with more decapitation. Um, at number five, uh, Dangal, which is, this is a really, really great movie. This is a movie about um, a guy, he wants to, 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 to win wrestling gold, he's not going to get it. He thinks that his sons will grow up and win wrestling gold for him. He has, a, he has daughters, not sons, and then his daughters take on the wrestling mantle. It's a really, really interesting film, and uh, I think Disney distributed it over here. It got quite a wide release, and it, it, I think it's a really charming film. And number four, Nacho Libre, that I include largely because it does refer back to Night of the Bloody Apes. It is one of those Mexican wrestling pictures that we're talking about and does include, of course, include the great line, there were no nutrients. Uh, at number three, Foxcatcher. Interesting thing about this film, when I reviewed this film in The Observer, this is based on a true story. And um, the whole point about the review was, I said, it's really interesting because if you don't know what happens in the story, this film is a real shocker and I won't tell you what happens in the story. So, um, you know, I'll just tell you about the thing and then, you know, if you know, that's fine. But if you don't, it's really interesting. And The Observer ran a piece with a picture that was captioned, um, convicted murderer. <laughs> there we go. If you haven't seen it, I just spoiled it for you. Um, at number two... Now, how many people have seen this? Okay, and but did you see it as that, or did you see it as California Dolls? Okay, because over here it was released as California Dolls, right? And it, it's actually a really good film, right? The poster makes it look like it's not a really good film. It is a really, really good film. And also, peculiarly, my dad took me to see it, okay? And my dad took me to see it because he liked Peter Falk. No, that's really why my dad took me to see it. My dad only ever took me to see two movies. One of them was All the President's Men, which he sneaked me into because I wasn't old enough to see it. And the other was The California Dolls. And he said, we're going to go and see this movie because it's got Peter Falk in it. And my dad and I went up to the box office, said two for California Dolls. And I looked at the poster and thought, my dad has actually lost the plot. But it turns out it's a really good film, except in America it's called All the Marbles, which is a terrible name. And at number one, again, not technically a wrestling movie, but who cares? Women in Love with the greatest... <laughs> the greatest ever uh, wrestling sequence in it. Ken Russell used to be my neighbour and uh, I had the great privilege of talking to Ken through many bottles of red wine about filming uh, Women in Love. I mean, Women in Love is still just a, a, you know, a wonderful piece of filmmaking. But that sequence, the uh, wrestling sequence between uh, Oliver Reed and Alan Bates, I still think is one of the most brilliantly erotic things that's ever been put on screen and of course at the time it really challenged the censors and you know John Trevelyan let it through on the nod despite the fact that he was worried about you know the, the level of male nudity in it but it is an absolute masterpiece and there is a blu-ray of it that just came out quite recently which has got rather brilliant sleeve notes written by uh, Dr Linda Ruth Williams whoever, whoever she is anyway okay so moving on uh, Here's the thing, very quickly, because we've kind of talked about this a little bit, since, since we, we last met, obviously we've had the BAFTAs, we've had the Oscars, Nick and I made The Secret of Cinema about the Oscars. How many of you saw it? That's great. You are just a few of the 700,000 people that saw it. That's a, that's a very high figure. That's like, it's over three quarters of a million. We did great. I only mentioned it in passing. Don't worry, it's fine. It's good. Did you like it? Did we miss anything? No, good. Did we get anything wrong? 
No, great. So you all agree that Coming Home should have won the Oscar for Best Picture and Deer Hunter's a piece of racist crap, right? Great. Okay, fine. As long as we're on this. Hands up anyone who actually likes the Deer Hunter. No, you don't. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. Have, you seen, have you seen Heaven's Gate? Yes. Tell me you don't like Heaven's Gate. You don't like Heaven's Gate? Okay. Have you seen Year of the Dragon? Uh, no. Great. Nobody did. Sun Chaser? No. Great. Brilliant. Okay. So, Michael Cimino's career. Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, Year of the Dragon, Sun Chaser. But before that, he got writing credits on Silent Running, which is one of the greatest science fiction movies ever written, so I do forgive you for that. <laughs> Deer Hunter, since we last met also, we've lost a whole number of people, just a few of whom are Bruno Gans. Oh... Which is, I mean, Bruno Gans, who was an American friend, you know, Wings of Desire, Downfall, extraordinary performances. Albert Finney, of course, we were on air when, when the news of uh, Albert Finney's passing happened. That is, you know, an extraordinary actor. Michel Legrand, and actually we were going to play you some Michel Legrand, but we, di we didn't because we have got some other film composition stuff coming up. And of course, Stanley Donan. Now, on the subject of Oscars, when Stanley Donan won his uh, honorary award for lifetime contribution to the movies. He gave arguably the greatest Oscar acceptance speech ever. I'm gonna show it to you because this is how you receive an Oscar. Marty, it's backwards. I should be giving this to you, believe me. And I wanna thank the Board of Governors for this cute little fella, which to me looks titanic. Tonight, words seem inadequate. In musicals, that's when we do a song. So, heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. He was in his late 70s when he did that. Isn't that fantastic? Okay, so staying with the, the subject of film music, I talked a while ago about um, this instrument, the Yebaha, that I'd seen used uh, on this film, Hostiles. And I was talking about Max Richter, who I think is a great composer. And Max did the score recently for Mary Queen of Scots, which I'm sure many of you saw, which I, incidentally I think was unfairly overlooked in the, in the awards season. Anyway, I, I had got in touch with... Um, with Max at the time of, uh, of Hostiles to say, you know, what is that weird instrument that I can hear? And he was good enough to, to email me back and I said, is there any possibility you can come on the show? Obviously, he's been very, very busy working, doing film scores, but finally, we managed to get him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Max Richter. In the <laughs> hey, Max, how you doing? All right, yeah. Don't you think that Mary Queen of Scots should have got more awards recognition? Yes, I do. And um, Josie Roy did a brilliant job with directing, particularly since she comes from a theatrical background. It was the first time she, she directed a feature film. But it doesn't look like a theatrical beat. It no. looks like a film. No, I agree. Um, I mean, I think both the leads are extraordinary. Um, you know, it's wonderfully acted. Uh, Josie is obviously brilliant with actors. Um, very clever, thoughtful directing. Very smart, beautifully made. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I felt 
you know, she should have got something. At what point do you start working on the score? Have they shot stuff already, or are you sort of script stage? How does it work? Yeah, um, when I I got the call from Josie when they were sort of up to their waists in mud in Scotland, uh, already shooting, uh, and I read it and I thought it was you know fantastic, uh, fantastic piece of writing, really interesting, uh, kind of an interesting way to. Uh, reconfigure our perception about that story. It's a story we know, we all know, you know. And yet we don't. She dies at the end. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's all about the, 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 the kind of politics around that, uh, gender politics, uh, and, you know, drawing those threads, you know, from our own time into the Elizabethan time. I, I, you know, I thought it was just brilliant. So, yeah. And how do you begin to write? Do you think of a, a single theme, or do you think... I mean, how did, what's the starting point for it? Because David Arnold once said that the job of a film composer is to sound like everybody else other than themselves. So how do you begin doing it? Um, it's, it's a kind of a puzzle-solving exercise for me. Uh, I mean, with uh, Josie's film, uh, having lived in Scotland for many years, you know, I had a kind of a kind of a sense of the feeling of the landscape um, because, you know, a lot of the film plays out in, you know, Glencoe and on the coast. And uh, so I wanted something which kind of felt like it came from, you know, only from there. Yeah. Um, and the other starting point for me really was the idea of women's voices because the film is a lot about, uh, you know, them trying to find a kind of autonomy within this sort of male uh, political structure. Um, so we used, uh, I made a bunch of stuff, really sort of abstract objects using the female voice. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, things germinate, everything leads to everything else and you start to kind of get a sense of the dynamics and things catching fire. And so yeah, it's an exciting process of sort of discovery really. Do you carry around like a tape recorder, but do you sing tunes into a dictaphone or? I have a lot of manuscript paper all over the house in the studio. I have this little pen which has got five nibs and you can just, any sort of napkin or anything, you can just like draw a stave and then you always have a pen <laughs> and you can write immediately. So you literally got a thing that, that will draw yeah, these. it's like, and, you, and there's a stave, it's really cool. Can I have one? Yeah, well it, it's, it, I, I just, it's funny because nobody seems to know about them but they do sell them. I think this. you've made it up, I think you've just yeah. sellotaped five pens no, together. No, 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 it's, 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 it's legit, it's a thing called a noligraph. No. And you can buy it in, in Dussmann's bookshop in Berlin. And whenever I go there... Yeah, well, whenever I go there, I just... <laughs> whenever I go there, I buy, like, 40. And it's called and a nolligraph. Yeah, the guy looks at me, sort of, like, yeah. Wow. It's very cool. Okay, and so when you, when you, you, you write it, so you hear, it, you hear a tune in your head, and do you start with, like, a... a is, there, is there usually a single theme or a... How does it begin? Yeah, well, it's... It's a sort of mysterious thing, really. It's about... I feel like com composition, for, certainly for cinema, is almost a process of discovery, of sort of uncovering stuff, uncovering things which feel in some way inevitable okay. or kind of authentic to the material. Um, so it's a sort of very conscious you know, writing process, a lot of theorising, a lot of ideas, conceptualising, and also uh, trying to rely on the stuff you don't know. 
uh, and that's what the material has inside it, you know, discovering inherent properties. You, uh, you very graciously answered a, a question that I sent to you recently because I was reviewing something, and there was a piece of music that you'd used, and it reminded, I had a distant memory of something that it reminded me of, and I just heard Ave Maria, Ave Maria, and I oh. sent you a message saying, I'm sorry, I'm being an idiot. What's the piece of music that I'm thinking of? Mm. That's, you sent me a thing saying, it's Zadok the Priest, it's not yeah. Ave Maria. Yeah. Yeah. And my father, when I told him that story, was just appalled that I didn't immediately know it was Zadok the Priest. He literally said, what are you, stupid? <laughs> um, but is there, sometimes there is that thing that, that, is there a piece of, a reference for a piece of music? You think that's the kind of mood, because it's not to do with the same notes, it's mm. to do with a sort of similarity of, yeah. of tone or intention or something. Yeah, I mean, what I was... What I was looking for, I wanted to make a, a theme for both the queens, something which they shared, um, because they you know, were really the only two people alive who had a shared experience, even though they were yeah. adversaries because of you know, an accent of the, the history they were living in. So I wanted the queens to have a theme, a royal theme. Um, and uh, Handel's Coronation Ode, as Adolf the Priest, is obviously, it's a kind of, it lights up in our brain, mm -hmm. the idea of regality. So I thought, well, that's an interesting, interesting property that material has. So I took that to pieces and thought, well, what are the elements which, which sort of convey that? So then I made it almost like a parallel text yes. to that music. So there's nothing to do with the handle, but it has no, no, there's none of the of same note. DNA and geometry that the handle has, and it kind of evokes it a little bit. And you yeah. think, what is that? Oh, it's kind of royal music. Uh, so it's a sort of homeopathic dose of that. Uh, I love that phrase, and you were very clever because when you wrote back, you said, uh, the thing that your super sense is detecting. That was very clever because you made me feel really smart, so I went, <laughs> OK. Um, we had asked you, we said, can you, can you tell us a film that sort of inspires your work? And you chose uh, Tarkovsky, the... Uh, Andrei Rublev. Rublev. Mm. And why? What, what is it about that? Was it something that, you, that, you, that had a profound effect on you? What was it that... Yeah, I mean, I saw it. Um, I saw this as a as a teenager, I guess, um, and um, it just kind of was a bit like being struck by lightning, because it's such an extreme piece of filmmaking. There's so much silence and space in it, and then incredibly brutal, horrible things happen. Yeah. Um, but it's also about creativity and art. It's about somebody trying to understand how to navigate being a person through the world. Um, it, it's all the big questions all wrapped up and it sort of, um, sort of lit up my teenage brain. And I think it's, it is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Do you go back and watch it when you're sort of in need of inspiration? Is it something that you go back? Like, I, I go back and read The Great Gatsby yeah. because I just... I, it is brilliant. Yeah, yeah and, mm. and you get into the rhythm of reading yeah. it. But do you do that with...? I've seen it a lot of times, yeah. Um, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, like a great novel or a painting or something, a, a, a film can be a sort of a place to rest in, you know. It's like a touchstone, isn't it? Um, and you measure how you've changed over years by how you feel about that work. You come back to it. Max, listen, it's been fabulous having you. I'm such a fan of your work, and I'm so glad that you, that you came on the programme. I know that it, it, one of the things I think is difficult talking about music is, is it is like talking about magic. It is like trying to explain how music works. But is there... Is there a single phrase that you can that kind of sums up your approach to film music? Is there something that kind of encapsulates how you approach it? Um, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be surprised, really. 
um, and to try and make discoveries. It's a, a process of discovery for me. Uh, you know, every film has its own universe sort of potentially inside it, and it's about sort of finding the things which feel like they could only live in that world. Okay, that's a great answer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Max Richter. Um, if you want to feel really old, Alien is 40 years old. It's coming back into cinema. I don't know how many of you were around when Alien first came out. I remember seeing it at the Gaumont in North Finchley. I remember being so scared that I thought I was going to lose control of my bodily functions. But before I saw the film, I saw the trailer for it. And the trailer was every bit as terrifying as the film itself. We've, this is a slightly sort of fudgy copy because like most of us, it's aged over the last 40 years. But I thought since Alien is 40 years old, here's the trailer for Alien 40 years old. Isn't that, just, isn't that just pure genius? Before the prequel spoiled it all by explaining everything, it was like literally that. I remember being scared out of my wits. And in fact, funnily enough, Nick and I have been together for, well, forever, since 1998. We're like an old married couple. And uh, we made a documentary for Channel 4 about the Alien movies some years ago, I think 2001, 2002. And we, we tried to get Harry Dean Stanton to, to, to do an interview. And he, he wasn't very keen because he didn't really like doing interviews. He liked playing playing blues music and we finally managed to somehow we got him to agree to do it but he didn't really want to do it and I was trying to ask him questions about the film about what it was like and he was very he did he, you know, god bless him he just didn't really want to talk about it and I thought well I know I'll ask him the question that always gets a great response which is to ask him about the sets because the sets which they built at Pinewood were enormous they were absolutely you know jaw-dropping and I said okay what were the sets what was it like you know what was it like when you walked down the sets for the first time you know incredible the alien landscape what was it like and he went the sets. I said, yeah. He said, what were they like? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you see the film? I said, yeah. He said, it was like that. <laughs> okay, on to coming attractions. Here is a trailer for a, a film that is opening uh, in a few weeks' time, and it's really, really lovely. You already would have heard a buzz about it. Here is the trailer for Wild Rose. <laughs> Country music is a three chords in the truth. Just gets whoever's in there out. I should have been born in America. I'm an American. You're young. You're incredibly talented. There is nothing you can't do. Just thinking about your kids, you cast them off when you get a better offer. This is me trying to make something of myself, and surely that's a good thing for them. No letting them down. That would be a good thing for them. Had to There's so, so much I can't undo. I wanted you to take responsibility. I never meant to take away your Please welcome to the stage, for the first time, the writer of Wild Rose, Nicole Taylor, and welcome back to MK3D, Jesse Buckley.
one of the things with country music is that um, you know it, it is it, 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 it's it's a music about love and loss. I mean, I for my 50th birthday, my wife took me to Birmingham to see Dolly Parton, who I'd never seen play before. I love Dolly Parton. And there was an audience of people who had loved and lost a lot. And it really felt like being amongst, you know, amongst friends that that music was being. There is, it's got everything. It's got tragedy and comedy and redemption and loss and failure. It's, it, it's all in there. I mean, it's really popular, I think, in Scotland for a reason. Um, places that are bad <laughs> at... <laughs> Places that are bad, uh, where people are not very good at emotional expression, you know, it's a kind of suppository for the emotionally constipated. And that is how I... Mo- <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No. But that's, that's how Please tell I me you haven't myself. used that line somewhere else. I want that to be said for the first time here. Some, some guy in the front is writing that down. <laughs> but that's how I myself have experienced it. I mean, it's just pure catharsis for me. I'd go mad if I didn't have it. Yeah. Jesse? <laughs> How's your suppositories going? So, when I'm we, fully flush now. Very good. When, we, when you came on the show last time to talk about Beast and you said that you were, you, you'd been making this film, so how, how did it come to you? What was your experience of making it? Uh, well, I'd worked with Tom Harper on Warm Peace, um, so he asked to meet me in the pub. He said, can I buy you a pint? I was like, yeah. (laughs) And then he'd said that he'd been sent this script um, called Country Music and uh, that he wanted me to read it and that he kind of didn't want to do it without me. So um, that's kind of how I I came into it. And then I met Nicole and we fell in love. (laughs) And were you a country fan before? Uh, No. Well, I grew up, like, my re- relationship with country was kind of bad Daniel O'Donnell impersonations in my hometown in Clarendon. I was like, not for me, thanks. Um, but now I am completely converted. And in fact, it's the only thing that comes in my Discover Weekly on Spotify. There's like no way of getting it off. So did you go on a Get Country crash course? Did you sort of, you know... <laughs> immerse yourself in it uh yeah i did and like nicole has got kind of a biblical knowledge of country music and sent me i suppose that was the thing was that my notion of it was something quite hick but the reality of the truth of it is something is the incredible humanity behind these songs and the lyrics just like literally can have some way of finding the trapdoor into the parts that you thought you'd like locked off in your heart and in the end you're sitting in a corner crying your eyes out or feeling like you could I don't know tear up the Grand Ole Opry <laughs> um, so and luckily I got put with an incredible bunch of musicians Neil McCall and um, Jack Arnold who was the music supervisor and over a course of kind of three four months I would kind of meet every two weeks and um, basically drown myself in country music. And the, obviously the, the singing is all yours, and you know you were a singer before when you came on the show before with Johnny Flynn, and you played uh, Bob Dylan's song that I ruined with my harmonica, which I... No, it's I lovely. Yeah, <laughs> lovely is an interesting word for my harmonica playing. But um, <laughs> did you, you know, was it, is there anything particular about singing country that you had to learn? <clears throat> um... Well, I think the thing that I've learned with it and the thing that I'm still learning about it is that um, you've got to pair all back and you've got to find the truth of the characters and the stories that each song is telling. And um, the rest takes care of itself. You know, it's a simple melody 
Um, but what, like what you said, is within the lyrics and within the stories of these songs is uh, the struggles of humanity. And um, when you let that just go, and you, ha you have to let yourself go into it, you can't try and manufacture it. Your character has three chords and the truth tattooed on their arm. And the first time I'd come across that phrase was I did a documentary about Skiffle for the culture show in which we had Billy Bragg on. And Billy Bragg, Skiffle's it. There's, there's somebody still wait to make the big Skiffle movie. And when they do, I'll come to you and say, I'm sure you could do that. <laughs> and he was using it to describe punk. And he said punk, that Skiffle was proto-punk, three chords and the truth. Where did you first hear that phrase? I think a veteran country songwriter uh, said it a long time ago and then wrote a song about it. But now it's become what everyone says about country music and skiffle apparently yeah yeah but yeah, it is but it is true isn't it that's it it's the whole yeah. thing about it's three chords that's yeah. it you keep it simple and and so that any it's because the thing about country is everyone feels that, that you hear the song once and you know it yeah. and that's kind of the the beauty of it mm. i mean to me I used to get, I was so diehard at school. People used to take the piss out of country music with that joke, you know, what do you get if you play a country record backwards, you dog back, your wife back, and all that. And <laughs> <laughs> it's a good joke, though. It's a good joke. <laughs> You're laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm hurt. I'm hurt by that. Because I, I know country has the reputation for being so simple, but to me, it's just so profound. And even if I'm writing something, nothing to do with country, I always start with a country playlist because I feel like. Every, the range of human emotion covered in country music is unlike any other music. Mm. And again, it just gives me access to my own emotions that I don't think I would otherwise have. What's your favourite country record? Oh, I love the song by Winona called um, Sometimes I Feel Like Elvis. Um, I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. Jesse? Um, I love Emmylou Harris' Wrecking Ball. Okay. Deeper Well is a pretty great song on that album. Favourite <laughs> And Emily was my first kind of portal into country okay. music. So. Okay. Favourite country and western song title? We don't say western around here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is, this, is a this is a recurrent thing all the way through the movie. People keep saying country and western. Country. Who was that poor faced Scottish girl yeah, you yeah, had yeah. on the podcast? Country, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so, but so when did, so at what point did country become called country and western? Because the thing that I play, which is skiffle, gets referred to sometimes as Western Swing. Mm. So that's the whole... So, but country... Do you know what? I think in the 90s, country tried to reinvent itself by taking away the Western. And there was a period where it was calling itself a new, new country. country. Do you remember that? Exactly. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, and now, <laughs> I, think <it's> just, <laughs> now yeah. I think it's just country. Okay. Yeah. All right. Listen, basically, we have to get out because uh, they're, they're going to have a pr uh, premiere in here in just a minute. It's coming in, which is why... Whenever this happens, if you see somebody waiting at that door, okay, and they look like they're benignly there to help you out, they're not. They're there saying, Mark, you need to get off the stage now. So just uh, very quickly, thanks ever so much, everybody, for coming. Please thank uh, Hedda for producing the show and Nick for doing all the uh, visuals, as always. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to all of you for coming to time and again. Thanks to Katie Potgrick for being here, which is lovely to see you. Yes. Right. Now we need to all get out. If you've enjoyed it, I've been Mark Kermode. If you haven't, I've been Mark Cousins. Good night.
This is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. If you like the sound of the MK3D live show that I do every month at the South Bank and you want to come along, it'd be lovely to see you in person, then come along to the BFI South Bank. You can get tickets by going online to the BFI website. Bear in mind, we sell the tickets uh, a couple of months in advance and they do sell out very, very quickly. Also, we never announce guests in advance. It's basically, you know, just turn up and, and see who we have for any particular show. It's it's always a surprise. And if you've enjoyed listening to this Kermit on Film podcast, then please do subscribe. Thanks very much. Be with you again in a week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.